Hey guys, Michael here with a quick announcement before we get into today's show. I just wanted to let you know that the RPG Academy Network is hosting our first ever GM Summit. This is going to happen on Saturday, October 17th at 9 p.m. Eastern and run for a couple hours, maybe three. We would like for you guys to join us live via chat and give us some questions that you would like for us to discuss or try to answer. If you can't be there, you can send your questions in ahead of time and we will uh, use them. But uh, we're really hoping that we can get some people to participate with us. Uh, we don't know everyone yet from the network who will be there, but I know of several, and I'm pretty excited about this. And it's something that I hope we will continue to do in the future with more and more questions and interactions from you guys. So once again, it's going to be Saturday, October 17th at 9 p.m. Eastern. It'll run for a couple hours, maybe three. It will be recorded and uploaded to YouTube after the fact, so if you can't be there live, you still will have a chance to view it. But again, we hope you guys will join us, interact with chat. If you can't be there, but you would still like to participate, you can go ahead and send us in some questions, and we will hold on to them. And uh, as we have dead spots, if no one else is joining us live in chat, we will answer them as best we can from the various different experiences that all of our different network members bring to the table. So once again, this is our first ever RPG Academy Network GM Summit. Saturday, October 17th at about 9 p.m. Eastern over Google Hangouts. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael. And I have brought along with me, as I often do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight, sir? I am doing quite well, basking in the glow of a successful Kickstarter campaign. Yes, uh, man. So I know we did an, a full episode recently about a catacon, so I, I've promised myself and you that we would not go into too much depth about the Akatacon process or Kickstarter this episode, but there's no way we're not going to touch on it. Holy crap. So exciting. You know, there's a part of me that's relieved that it's over, but as I've said before, like on Twitter and Facebook, now the hard part happens. Now we got to actually deliver on this promise. Well, you know, we could always just escape in the night with all the money. It's not quite enough to make that worthwhile. Well, you know, weekend in Vegas. <laughs> you know, if we did bet it all on 22 and we hit, then we would have enough that we could do this in style. That's very true. So let's put a vote out to uh, the Academy listeners. <laughs> Who wants us to risk all of the money on one night in Vegas? Michael and I will break the Vegas rule of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and let you know what does happen. So this is in the hands of the audience at this point. And if we win, we'll fly everyone in to Vegas and we'll do a catacon there instead. Well, it depends on how much we win. If we win $10, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, no, we're going to bet it all. Oh, we're going to bet roll. It's either, okay. it's either 35 times what we have or it's zero. That, that's the only option. Okay. If, if, with that being the case, if that's what's agreed upon, yes. Every, everyone gets a, a plane trip to Vegas. It could work. I don't even know if that would be that much money. I mean, honestly. But anyway, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so let's move on. So before we get too far into this, let's take a moment and explain what we're here to do. So with these table topic episodes, Caleb and I try to share some of our experience that we have gleaned from the many years of us playing tabletop RPGs. 
And we want to share that advice and that wisdom with you. But we know that the things that we say, the opinions that we share are not applicable at every table, every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. That is the motto that we gain by here at the RPG Academy, and we hope that you guys will adopt that as well. As long as you're having fun, it doesn't matter what system you play, what edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse. As long as you're having fun, you're playing the game correct. So as we kind of talked about at the very top of the show, Catacon, Kickstarter is over. It exceeded our expectations. We got over $6,000, so we hit almost all of the swag bag levels. The only one that we didn't get to was, well, there's two. We did not get to the t-shirt level, and then there was another level where everyone would get multiples of the D6, so they'd get a four, like a full set, quote-unquote, of the D6 for the, with the Akatacon logo. Uh, we did not get to those. Uh, for the t-shirt, the, the current plan, which I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do, is I'm going to put together a Teespring campaign with the same logo that we would have provided to everyone. And then that would allow everybody to buy their own if they want one. Because I'll be honest, I want one. I, I would really like to have one of those shirts. So I'll put it together. I'll put it up. It'll go out and the link will go out in the Kickstarter update. No pressure, no obligation. If you want one, great. If you don't, no harm, no foul. As long as we get to the minimum, everybody will get the shirt if they want it. And so unfortunately, you have to buy your own rather than me collectively taking a little bit of money from everybody and providing it to everyone. So, you know, and I'll make them as cheap as I possibly can. I'll, I'll make it so that we're making pretty much nothing on any of them. It'll be bare bones price if we do it. I think that's a good idea. We've done Teespring campaigns before. They do really good quality t-shirts. This way, people have the option of doing what they want. Uh, who knows? Maybe if we have time, we could actually put together a couple different ideas. I don't know. But we'll pop that up there. We will send out a link for that through our Kickstarter updates. Of course, we will put that on our Twitter and Facebook so everyone can see that as well. Absolutely. Uh, so speaking of audience, had some exciting numbers this to share this morning. At least I thought they were exciting. I don't, I don't know in the grand scheme of things. But I was looking at our website numbers, and I think I've mentioned a couple times on like Twitter and such, that we are on pace to double our downloads and our visits this year versus last year. And we doubled last year over the year before. So we're growing in pretty significant uh, statistical amounts. So I looked at the numbers today and we are right now on pace to have over 600,000 visits to our website, which again, I don't know really compared to anybody else if that's more or less, but to me, it's an exciting number. And we are almost at a million page views and those numbers are double last year. So we still may be nothing, but we're twice as much as we were last year. Of course, twice as much of twice nothing is still nothing, mathematically. That is, that, that is correct. I'm not good at math, but I do know that one. <laughs> but I think that's exciting. I, I love to see those numbers grow. I like to see those translate into more downloads. Um, you know, we, we want to try to get more people coming to the site just to come to the site because we are primarily a podcast. So there's not a lot of reason to do that. You can just, you know, subscribe to us and get all of our content. So we're working on that. We've got some other things in the works that we want to start doing. Uh, but if you're listening to this, please take a moment, check out the site, hit up our forums. Uh, use some of our links that you can go to some of our affiliates. We uh, we have the RPG Academy Network, which has grown. That's another thing we should talk about. So we have added some new sites here recently. We've added City of Brass, 
which is an online suite of tools that allow you to manage your campaigns, build encounters, build adventures, manage your, your stories. So that way, when you're actually playing the game, it kind of does all the math for you. It makes it easy. Uh, we've recently added Tribality, which I thought was a big get, to be honest with you. I think those guys do amazing work. You know, if you've not went down the click hole that is Tribality, please go over there, take a look. They have a ton of different authors and writers that, that contribute to their site. They have, I think, daily columns that come out, and it's all high-quality stuff. I mean, there's a lot of sites that put out content every day. Not always the best in the world, but I think Tribality has some of the best standards that I've seen, and I just think those guys do a great job. So I'm very excited that Sean and Mike, who are the two guys that run that, uh, wanted to be a part of the RPG Academy Network. And then we have another podcast that joined us just recently. Uh, GM Jim McClure, who I lovingly refer to as that L5R guy, um, started his own podcast. It's uh, Talking Tabletop. And then there's a companion podcast called Talking Tabletop Heroes Journey. I've listened to every episode for both of them. They are excellent, and I highly recommend that you guys check them out. And I highly hope that there will be an invite for you and I to uh, do a little bit of a crossover one of these days. I have heard rumors that that's already in the works. I cannot confirm nor deny that, but I have a feeling that we will be invited uh, to uh, be in uh, be on that show as well. At least I hope so. I I really do like it. Like it's not just me saying that. Like it's really good. Oh yeah, Jim has put together a really good show, and his conversations are as tangential as yours and mine. But he just does a really good job at bringing everything together into what he is focusing on with whatever guest he is speaking to at the moment. As I said to him online the other day, if he does not absolutely destroy me with our L5R game at a Catacon, we might have to have a couple epic debates about certain things. But I think after our L5R game, I won't be able to do a damn thing. <laughs> well, maybe we'll work that out beforehand. And then I do want to give... Uh, another shout out, this is someone who is not part of the RPG Academy Network, at least not yet, uh, and that is to Shane, also known as Dangerous. He has also launched his own podcast, and it is called Total Party Thrill. Uh, it is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all that kind of stuff, and I actually think they're doing a really good job there as well. Him and uh, his DM, Ishan, who ran like a, this three-year epic Eberron campaign, they went from level one to 20. They are basically sort of using that as a springboard to talk about what they did. And they also do a character creation forge at the end of every episode where they put together uh, mechanically a different type of character that is Adventure League uh, legal. And uh, he asked me for some feedback. and I told him, I think your creation forge is the best thing on your podcast. And it's the thing I like the least because it's just crunch. Like it, it is totally just mechanically. How do you build the best this? But I think from a value standpoint, that's a very valuable thing for people who are interested in that. And even though I don't like it, I find it very interesting. So that's another podcast. If you have not yet checked out, I hope that you will. Yes, we all know that you don't want anything to do with the actual rules and mechanics as they are printed in the book. Nope. But speaking of that, Shane actually provides us a very good transition to get into today's actual show. One of the things that we had been doing recently is was everything here. We We'd start and stop and jump around. Uh, but we started doing a little segment that I really enjoyed where we would take a class of D&D 5th edition and kind of marry it up to a background and see if we could come up with some interesting combinations or interesting twists or just, you know, some uh, 
inspiration. And uh, we were doing this three or four episodes in a row right before the Kickstarter launch, which kind of screwed everything up. And Shane had challenged us to do the charlatan background with the paladin class, and then specifically to do each of the three devotions, the uh, or the um, oaths, the oath of devotion, oath of the ancients, and then the uh, oath breaker. So we are going to actually start this episode with those uh, rather than do it at the end. So I will throw it over to you first, Caleb. So what do you have in mind when you think of charlatan, paladin, order of the devotion? Okay, so first and foremost, if we bring together charlatan and paladin without even talking about the oaths, you could take that a lot of different ways. Uh, This could be a paladin who is essentially undercover basically making use of his charlatan background to infiltrate something. If you want to take it the appropriate way as written, that you pick your background first and then move into your class, the classic trope is that this is a... uh, This is an individual who had a life on the streets, was a criminal, whatever, and got brought into the church, and was then trained as a paladin. So you can use that route. I think that's pretty typical. If you want to think about a criminal becoming a good guy, that's a very easy trope to follow there. And as a player, you could work that into your background pretty easily. The charlatan background in 5th edition gives you the false identity trait or feature, so you could use that as either a way to infiltrate or exploit your knowledge of the streets or use your criminal background successfully, a clever GM could flip that around a little bit, use that as a trouble uh, from the fate style of things, and have this be a, a secondary personality or identity that actually comes back to haunt the paladin. And this, this could be a way that trouble is created during the campaign. The paladin, who's now a good guy, rolls into a new town, and suddenly one of his or her old criminal contacts walks up to them in a bar. Oh, it's you. What are you doing here? And and this person starts addressing the paladin by his or her other identity. So you could have a lot of fun with that. Or you could pretty much just say, you know, this is a paladin of trickery or tomfoolery or uh, whatever version you want to spin the charlatan concept for your pantheon i mean if you were following a norse pantheon and you wanted to be a paladin of loki i think that makes perfect sense uh if you wanted to be a paladin that maybe embraced the chaotic side of the alignment chart the charlatan background might fit there pretty easily if we specifically are talking about oaths and we're talking about the Oath of Devotion, you could be devoted to maintaining that aspect of chaos or thievery or street life or being a criminal. You could also very easily put the Oath of Devotion into effect if you are playing off that reformed criminal trope. You were a criminal, so that's why you have the background. You're now a good guy, so you are devoted to stamping out the unlawful acts, and you use your knowledge of the streets to make that happen. 
So I like all the things that you said. Uh, those are definitely classic tropes. Um, in particular, the sort of reformed character that, you know, in their background, they used to be a criminal, but now they're on this righteous path. And of course, their background will catch up to them. And I can think of any number of movies, TV shows, particularly some Westerns, where that comes to the front and it can always provide entertainment value. What I think of when I think of the Oath of Devotion Paladin is, I, most people know I'm a fan of Stephen King. I've read most of, of his works. Have you read The Stand or have you watched the miniseries? Yeah, of course. Do you know Rob Lowe played uh, Nick Andros, right? Yeah. Nick Andros, even though in the, in the show he's mute, he had an interesting conversation with Mother Abigail about God because uh, Nick was an atheist. And Mother Abigail basically said, I'm paraphrasing here, that it doesn't matter if you believe in God, God believes in you. So I love the idea of someone who's actually a charlatan that is selling these fake cures that are basically trying to give people hope where there is none just to make a buck. But then he starts to create actual miracles. And he himself is not aware of why it's happening or how it's happening. Now, obviously, in metagames, you're going to have to have the players buy in for this. Or as a DM, you're going to be basically changing their class behind the scenes. But I really like the idea of someone who thinks they're a charlatan and they have been a charlatan, but then their cures start to work and these speeches that they give that they're just like, I'm just going to blow this town up. I'm going to get all their money and I'm going to skedaddle. But then they start affecting real change. And I think that could be a very interesting character moment with what do you do with that power? If you start to abuse it, maybe it stops. You know, you're like, aha, I can do this thing. And you put yourself in a situation and then it fails you because you have stopped being the vessel for this God. You've started to try to, you know, take that, uh, you know, Joan of Arc type of thing where you start to read your own press and then it stops working and you kind of get yourself in trouble. But that's kind of what I think would be a very interesting take on that particular combination. That is a great idea for the concept of a charlatan and a palatin. It's a very typically ambitious Michael plan to try to put that into a game. I honestly don't know how that would work in a standard Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition game. I could see that working a lot more smoothly in a different rules set, something like Savage Worlds or Fate, something that is not so class and level dependent. Anything is possible, and there's never a wrong way to do anything, but if that's the idea you want to try to pull into your game, first off, you really need player buy-in. A hundred percent, you need to get your players on board. This has to be their idea. This has to be something that they are willing to play along with, and it's also something that you're going to have to put the effort into to make the rules work. Now, if we're talking about how to put these two concepts together in a crazy, off-the-wall rules manipulation kind of way, we could also talk about someone who is pretending to be a paladin. So you are a charlatan, and you are not a paladin in the classic D&D fantasy setting sense that you worship a deity but are the malicious arm of this deity, as opposed to the clerics who are the casting arm of this deity. You are, what's the word I'm thinking of? You're, you're a grifter, you're a con artist. You get some armor, and you march into town, and you pretend that you are a paladin. Again, this is more of a, a story concept and less of a solid mechanics concept. 
it would be a little bit easier to do this mechanically, though, because I think with a clever player who's willing to buy in and play along, you could take the mechanics of a paladin as written in the player's handbook and figure out ways to accomplish the same thing with some reskinning and using other existing mechanics. So for example, and again, this is something that is not easy that you can just whip up in an afternoon. It's something you're going to have to dump some hours into to figure out. But if you are trying to duplicate a paladin's smite ability that just does a bunch of extra damage with a flashy show of radiant energy, this grifter, this con artist, could probably figure out how to do that with some alchemical weapons, with some flash grenades, uh, with a, a lot of really good bluff rolls to support what he's claiming. I think that could be really fun. That could also be used, if everyone is on board, in a situation where the players are willingly keeping secrets from each other at the table. Now, we've talked about this on other shows. Some people do not approve of doing that in a game. Some people do. I think it's fine in the right setting. So if you had a player who wanted to do this, who basically said, hey, I'm going to be a rogue, but I want to pretend to be a paladin, you could figure out how to reskin and have it be that whatever he is doing as as a con artist looks like a paladin. And he is constantly making roles to convince the other party members that he is, in fact, a paladin. Very, very complicated, but it could make for a really interesting story hook. No, and I agree. I do think that would probably be the easier way to do it. Like you said, you could always reskin effects, mechanics, powers, specifically if you're willing to do things, you know, alchemical means, or even, you know, we, we could have like a cross class situation where maybe they were like an arcane trickster before they became a paladin. Uh, that would give them the ability to do some minor spells along with uh, some rogue abilities that they could probably do a sneak attack with some sort of minor illusion and make that look like a smite. Or it, it is a smite, but it's based off of those things. I like my idea better from a story standpoint, but not uh, not surprising. I do think yours makes more sense and would probably be easier to implement at the table. Oh, absolutely. If If we were writing a script, your idea is 100% the way I would want to go. Although I also think it would be fun to write the story of someone who flat out knows that he is a con artist pretending to be this holy man. And if we're already telling the story where people are possibly bleeding their actions across the lines of what is mundane and what is divine, a person who is willingly saying, I'm just faking all of this, walking into the situation where sometimes the divine does become real could be a really cool foil to those people who are in that story. Oh, yeah. I mean, and again, I'm, there's nothing original about my idea. Oh, God, I'm, no. I'm sure there's, there's just as many books and stories and comics and things where that's come up. But I love that idea of being in the moment where you think you're a charlatan, you think that you've got this town fooled, and then the thing happens where everyone looks to you. And, you know, common trope, there's a child that's injured. And they're like, you can heal, please heal him or her or whatever. And you're like, okay. And, you know, hopefully the player would actually have like a crisis of conscience. Like I, you know, this kid's not going to survive because I can't actually do this. But they go through the motions anyways. And then the kid's actually healed. 
oh man, that could be such a great moment at the table. Well, if I could throw the conversation back to something we mentioned earlier, uh, in the most recent episode of Jim McClure's podcast where he was talking with Cat Cool, they were talking about how to bring up those really deep story elements in a long-form storytelling game. And they were talking about how sometimes you have to engineer these moments to get the cool aspects of role-playing to come out. So this is a really prime example of how you can set up a situation, bring the players into it, and then watch what happens and let them add to it, take away from it, manipulate it, change it. But you're setting up the framework uh, for them to walk into. So if that's not a great reason for you to go listen to Jim's episode after this episode is done, because obviously you should listen to us first, you should definitely do that when, when you're done. All right, but let's move on because we have two more oath paths to cover. So next we're going to move on to the Oath of the Ancients. So this is a paladin who's, you know, more connected to the principles of good versus any sort of like law. Uh, the four principles are, so this is like a, think of like a druid type of thing, like you're paladin of uh, nature or the ancient places. So how do you bring that together with a paladin charlatan background oof that one is a little more tricky you could still exploit the whole grew up on the streets and you stumbled into this life that's always going to be the easiest way to exploit this background and class combination uh, instead of growing up on the streets and being taken in by the church, this kid was an orphan in the woods or grew up on the streets, was kicked out of town, and then the druids found him. And so he had some muscle, so he learned how to be a paladin for nature instead of for the church. That's an easy solution. I'm trying to think of a more challenging solution, and I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. So do you have something to throw in here, Michael? <laughs> Well, as always, my go-to option is break the rules. So I'm going to break the rules a little bit here. So what comes to mind here for me, I have two actually, but they're somewhat similar, is when I first saw this Oath of the Ancients, my thought is that the character has a dual personality and they are actually like reincarnated, uh, some sort of past hero, or maybe even like a spirit, like maybe there's like an ancient dragon that has imbued their spirit into you. So it's like a firestorm situation where there's two halves, one of which is connected to this ancient thing, the civilization or power. So as the charlatan, that's what you do, but you have this power within you, which is a lot like the first one, but again, it's kind of a fluff thing, you know, but again, that's what I'm here for. But the other thing that came to mind was Shepherd Book from Firefly. Hmm. Because you have this person who clearly had a dark background. It was never explicitly said, but we assume that he was basically was an operative for the, the Alliance long before. But he has given those things up, and now he has become this shepherd. And he's, in some ways, that is a fake identity, because he still is the operative. He still has those skills, which came out in a couple episodes, but he's trying to walk the path of light. And so that would be kind of an easy way to do it, is, is truly say, I have a charlatan background. In my past, I was a charlatan. Now I'm a paladin, which is kind of what you were saying for the first, where your your past catches up to you, uh, that, you know, you used to be that person, but you're no longer that person. But then eventually your past is going to catch up 
and you're going to be forced to, do you switch back? Do you fall back to what you were or do you continue to walk the path of the righteous man? That makes a lot of sense. I, I think that is an idea that has a lot of opportunity for good role playing and good moral dilemmas and difficult choices to be presented to you as a player. Again, I think that has to come as a choice from the player, though. Uh, the player has to say, hey, I think I want to do this with my character. That's not something, as a GM, you should try to thrust upon the player and force them into that role. Unless they said, well, you know what? I want to be a charlatan because I want these skills, and I want to be a paladin because I want these class abilities. I just don't know how to put them together. You could say, hey... Here's an idea if you're willing to go along with it, but be aware that means I'm going to take a little bit of agency with your backstory and something bad is going to come up, potentially. If you are also playing a game that has a lot to do with nature magic and primal magic, if we can go back to a fourth edition term, you could very easily have a pantheon of nature that corresponds to different seasons, and there could be some elements or deities that correspond to the the trickster god kind of personality, in which case the charlatan would be an easy fit as well. So again, that idea is going back to a, a very easier way to put together these two ideas, not a cool, challenging story way, but it's just something else to think about since we're brainstorming here different ideas. All right, so then we have what Shane thought was the most challenging of the options, and that is the Oath of Vengeance. And this is pretty much a paladin that has, I'm not going to say they have fallen, but they have seen so much that they have now decided that the only way that they can pursue their goals is through murder and death. So how would you take a paladin who has an Oath of Vengeance and mesh that with the charlatan background? Well, we could just say Batman. <laughs> I think that okay. that sums it up pretty simply batman yeah just batman uh, some someone who has saw or experienced a great injustice and learned to deal with it on his or her own so someone who has taken to the dark side of the law being a vigilante someone who is saying justice is not being served i have to go the path of the underworld i have to learn how to exist with these criminals so that I can bring them to my own brand of justice. If anyone makes a comment about Gotham in response to, hey, that's like that thing, I will drive to your house and punch you in the face. <laughs> well, the only pushback I'll give you is that that fits more the Punisher because one of the Oath of Vengeance tenets is that, you know, by any means necessary, where Batman won't kill. So you still have to have a little bit of a concession, but but absolutely, I think that works. So for me, I'm going to go back to, again, I'm kind of stealing your ideas. I'm just moving them around. To me, this is the classic example of an uh, undercover agent mm. where you have given up everything because of some terrible, you know, maybe some sort of, you know, priestly something happened in, sorry, the, like the church, you know, it's corrupted, but the only way to get to the bottom of it is to get to the top and that's to work your way up. So you, you devote yourself to this false religion, keeping secretly to your own. And you just play along, play along, play along until you reach the pinnacle where you are able to expose the corruption. The difficulty is you're playing a game with other people, and that is a type of a story that is going to be difficult for you to get its due and, and do other things. 
you know, uh, you could kind of touch on it lightly by me, by maybe priesthood or the church is assigning these jobs or these adventures that your character along with the others go on. You know, maybe they're like freelance mercenaries. You're connected to the church and they send you out after these relics and you bring them back. So then you get rewarded and you move up. And so it's sort of like a sort of behind the, the screen thing where, okay, now that you're fourth level, you're now no longer an alkalite of this church. You're now this and the you know, four or five more levels. And now you're this. So you're not necessarily doing the day-to-day politics, role-playing that. Maybe like every now and then there's an adventure where that happens, where there's a lot of like in the church politicking going on. But for the most part, I think it's going to have to happen sort of, you know, like maybe in emails after the game or text messages back and forth. I just don't think other people at the table are going to particularly enjoy that unless everyone is doing that. Like if everybody has banded together, they know the church is corrupted, they're all part of it. Maybe they're not all have to be paladins, but maybe they're all undercover. Otherwise, I just don't know how well it would play at the table. Yeah, that's definitely more of a story explanation for how to bring together these two concepts, which is what we expect from you. I aim to please. (laughs) You stick to what you're good with. We know that. That's right. I think that's a great story. Uh, I think you're right, though. It, It definitely has to be something that either everyone needs to be on board with or that the player has to do a lot of behind-the-scenes work with the GM to pull everything together. If we want to go the more simple route, you could always go with the concept that this is the god of vengeance, or the god of enforcing oaths, or or whatever, and that god has chosen someone with the charlatan criminal background because... The deity thinks that this person has the right skills to be his tool in the various moment of what's happening. If we wanted to go to the trope of a random person being given a divine vision and divine mission, uh, if we want to continue the movie references and throw back to Boondock Saints, I think you could argue that this is a criminal being given divine power to do something. Unless that the whole point of that movie is not that. I don't know. It's still kind of complicated. It could be Blues Brothers. They're on a mission from God. That's very true. I mean, they didn't have armor, but they had sunglasses and cigarettes. And a half a tank of gas. <laughs> half a tank of gas. <laughs> so you could you could stretch the definitions of how you unite the, this charlatan and paladin concept in order to make it work. If nothing else, 5th edition is very flexible with how you put things down on paper. So there's a lot of wiggle room. The rules are so light and vague at times that you have a lot of leeway to insert your own concepts. So everything we've been talking about with all of these different ideas, they all work. It just depends on what you want to do with your character and your story. There's no wrong way to say, I pick the charlatan background and the paladin class. It's just how creative you want to be with your explanation, with your reason, with your rationalization, and how creative you want to be with using those skills. Personally, when I pick a 5th edition background and class, I try to find ones that let the skills work together really well, so that my character ends up being really well-rounded. If you don't care, though, and you want to have two different skill sets, that's fine, too. It just depends on your play style 
and what you want your story to be. Well, and and I've said this before, but it's been a while since we've done this episode, so I'll reiterate it. The, at the end of the day, your background is what you did before you're an adventurer. It is your background. You can easily have left that life behind, but there's still it's still part of you. So you were a charlatan, you were a con man, but you're not now. You're a fighter, you're a priest, you're a paladin, you're a wizard, you're a warlock, whatever. But in your past, you have these skills and you have these contacts and you have these abilities that are still with you. Uh, going back to my go-to movie references, Axel Foley from the Beverly Hills Cop. He goes to break into a house and someone's like, how do you know to do that? I wasn't always a cop. He's a cop now. He's a paladin. In the past, he was a criminal. So that's how he knows how to open doors breaking in. That doesn't mean that he's, you know, actively a criminal now. He's just using skills that he picked up along the way. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think because I personally come from the 3.5 version of rules, I am a little bit more habitually going to try to unite everything together in one story. Because in my mind, my character sheet, I see one giant list of skills with different levels assigned to each one. Now, I might very... I might personally, when I'm making my character backstory, say, okay, well, these skills are maxed out because I'm using them now because that's what I'm trained in now. I have a couple ranks in these skills because that's what I did before I was this class. Like, I might define it that way in the big picture, even though the character sheet and the mechanics don't specifically require me or, or give me the opportunity to do that. So I was always doing that same thing. But what you said is really the best thing to keep in mind when you're exploring the, these fifth edition concepts. One was what you did before, one is what you're doing now. And, and that's what's most important to remember. I'm also interested to see the demographics of our audience, that how many people have no idea who the Blues Brothers are, or that Eddie Murphy used to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up, kids. It's the internet. Yep. All right, so let's move on to uh, sort of the meat of this conversation, which that actually took quite a while. I actually think that that in itself could have been a great episode. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit, and you and you touched on it, reskinning. And this, we threw out some Twitter prompts asking people for some suggestions for tonight's episode, and this is one that we got that we liked. And we're going to talk about reskinning. And there's a couple different avenues that you can use this for. Um, you can reskin mechanics, which we talked about how you could pretend to be a paladin, but you're using magic and alchemical means and, you know, grenades, or you can reskin monsters so that, you know, you take a goblin, but you make it something else because there are no goblins in your world, or you take a monster that should be more powerful and you reskin it to make it more moderate for your character. So they get to face something that they shouldn't quite face, or you can just make up your own stuff and you can kind of pick and choose different elements of different monsters or different things and put them together in a new and unique way to make the campaign feel like it's your campaign. So this is more of a crunchy area of the conversation. So I'll let Caleb kind of start it and then I will fluff it as best I can. God, it sounds dirty when I say it that. It sounds so dirty. I'm so glad that's what we settled on for you. It makes my job so much more entertaining. So when we're talking about reskinning, to me, reskinning simply means playing with the flavor, with the fluff of something that already exists. You're not changing the numbers, you're not changing the rules, you're just changing how you define what happens in this made-up world. 
So the easiest example I can give to explain reskinning is if you are changing the genre of the game, but not changing the mechanics. So if you want to use Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition mechanics, but play in a sci-fi setting, a cyberpunk setting, a modern setting, instead of the fantasy setting, you're reskinning the mechanics to fit the setting. So instead of fireball as a spell, that might be rocket launcher in a modern setting. That might be plasma gun or psychic attack or I don't know, whatever fits what you're doing. If you're playing superheroes, that becomes a cyclops eye beam. That becomes a, a summoned fireball. I mean, it could still be a fireball. It's just how you're getting a fireball. Instead of magic, it's psychic, or it's a machine, or you're Iron Man, or whatever. Um, th this is something where you have to put the, the effort in as you guys are making characters and building the world. So that you're all on board, you're all doing the same thing. This isn't something you should just throw at players. It's something that everyone should be involved with. I said I've actually said many times that you could take fourth edition D and D, change nothing but the words, and make it a superhero game. Oh, absolutely! I think fourth edition was one of the best systems out there for simply reskinning the flavor and changing nothing else. It was so easy to make all the skills and spells and abilities in 4th edition something else because you didn't really have things like class abilities and spell slots and rages and sneak attacks. Everything was in terms of powers. And fighters had martial powers and wizards had arcane powers. Well, if we're going to make it a modern setting... Soldiers have close combat powers, and snipers have long-range gun powers. It still works. You're still doing the same things. <laughs> One of my friends, when we were making fun of 4th edition, we said, hey, you know what? All these powers are pretty much the same. So a fighter does 4d6 fire damage with his sword. A wizard does 4d6 fire damage with his spell. A psychic does 4d6 fire damage with his mind. Well, if we're reskinning everything, a policeman does 4d6 damage with his gun. A psychic does 4d6 damage with his mind. A uh, super spy does 4d6 damage with his Krog Maga training. It all works. That's what reskinning is. And the same thing applies to monsters. So if you change nothing about the monster mechanically and stat-wise, you just change what it looks like and how you describe it, you've reskinned the monster. I don't know why, but I specifically remember reading an article back in the 4th edition era of someone reskinning a white dragon into a cold-based robot, cybernetic something that did cold damage. I don't know why I remember that. I don't know where it was, but that has stuck in my head as the definition of reskinning for me. And that's exactly what it is. If, if you're flipping through the 5th edition monster manual and you're looking at the dragons or the giants or what have you, and you say, well, you know what, we, we've changed over to a cyberpunk setting, and this is something that I kind of like the stats and the level and, and what the effects are, how do I change the flavor? How do I make it work? 
okay, well, he's not a giant. He's a guy with cybernetic enhancements. Okay, it's not a dragon. It's it's a corporate AI, and it's manifested as this thing. I mean, hell, it's cyberpunk. You can it can still be a dragon. It can still be a, a, a holographic dragon. Who cares? It's cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is the definition of I don't give a fuck. It's happening. <laughs> well, one of the examples that I would uh, call out, and I'll I'll give uh, Michael credit for this one. As we were talking about a game that I'm working on called Spirits, which is uh, sort of a Western-themed game. And it's a world where there aren't going to be traditional monsters. Like, you're not going to go into the woods and fight orcs, necessarily. Uh, and I brought up the thing about, like, a beholder. Like, there's not, you're not going to find a beholder in this world. He's like, yeah, but you could still have a beholder. It's just a guy like, like the Mandarin. He's got ten rings. And each ring is a different power. And, you know, he's got a big, big anti-magic amulet on. And basically, you just use a beholder, but it's a dude with, with magic items. Exactly. That's, that's a perfect reskin. That is all based on your creativity. They're, they're not changing the mechanics. You're not changing a single stat. You're not changing a single mechanic. You're saying, all right, instead of a monster, it's a dude. A dude walks up. He does this, this, and this. There you go. There, there's nothing simpler than that. And you're not even changing, really, the setting or the genre at that point. You're just creatively adapting the flavor of the monster. I mean, geez, you could do the same thing. In, instead of fighting a dragon, you're fighting a guy who can fly and has a breath weapon. As long as you can explain why that is happening in your world and it makes sense, you're done. Preparation over, just roll with it. I think a lot of, like, when I think of reskinning, for me, it the two main reasons that I'm going to do it is, one, like I said, I'm creating a world... That's more like a Western. So putting a beholder doesn't make sense. Like it, that's going to kind of destroy the atmosphere that I'm going for. And it's going to take players out of the world that I've, I'm trying to create. But if I still want to use creatures that are in the monster manual, I'm just going to reskin them as other things. You could even reskin them as a trap. They could be going through a dungeon. They go into a room that's a beholder that there's all these different little portals that I-beams shoot out of, and there's a place in the middle that's an anti-magic zone, so they can't stand there. And, you know, you, you work it out so that they are attacking different parts or they're using skill challenges to try to uh, wear it down and dis disarm it so you could find a beholder as a trap if you want to. But it's a way for you to use the, all the work that other people, mostly more probably smarter than I am, I won't speak for you, but they are, uh, hey. That have you know spent time and energy trying to balance these creatures, make them interesting, give them cool powers. You don't want to necessarily have to create everything from scratch every time. So you need to find a way to use the material presented, but you want to make it your own. Uh, and you know, again, if you're in a world that doesn't have zombies, but you want to have a maybe it's a, like you said, it's an AI, it's a robot, it's a Terminator. That's why they won't die because they're Terminators. Okay make it a zombie, use the stats of a zombie, but this just happens to be a robot that unless you hit it in the head, it's going to keep coming after you and it's never actually quite dead. Absolutely. And and you're you're completely right. Reskinning is just a way to use the work that's already been done to fit your specific needs. Now, after we talk about reskinning, we need to jump over to simply adapting existing monsters, not changing what they look like, but now we're talking about changing how they function. So this is something that Michael and I have talked about on previous shows when we've talked about 
customizing the difficulty of an encounter, making something easier or harder based on your specific needs. This is something I do pretty frequently, to be honest with you. Uh, I take an existing monster and I either make it way easier or way harder to fight. And I do that for a variety of reasons. Maybe I want to use a specific monster in a combat situation because of the story requirements, but the PCs aren't equipped to fight that specific thing. Best example, a dragon. The game's called Dungeons and Dragons, but you don't fight dragons very often. Dragons are difficult to run for GMs. They were even crazier in previous editions. They're pretty easy to manage now, but they're still pretty big beastly things to drop onto a combat. And it's hard to fight them. And you've got to be pretty well equipped and a good party and a good level to be able to take on a dragon for it to be fun and challenging. But if I want to use a dragon in combat because I think it would be cool or it's part of the story, but the PCs aren't ready for it yet, I've got to shave away some of those dragon abilities in order to make this a viable encounter and not just a, oh, there's a dragon and it leaves for no reason. You guys saw a dragon, whoop-de-doo, now go fight the goblins. <laughs> if, if I want the PCs to actually have the thrill of fighting a big nasty monster, I've got to be able to make that happen. So a lot of times this boils down to changing the AC, changing the hit points, lowering the attack values, the attack dice, that kind of thing. In my mind, it was a little bit easier to do this in previous editions because, well, no, what? You know, I'm going to take that back. I'm very much wrong. It was, it's easier to do that now with 5th edition because monsters are pretty much one-page beasts at this point. Everything is on one page. They're all based on the same stats. If you need to change the attack, take away a couple dice, lower the attack bonus. It's really, really simple to do that. When I was doing that in Pathfinder or 3.5, I had to deal with things like changing spell slots, changing feats, changing saves. It was a lot more complicated in the old days. Now, I'll take a page from Michael in the fact that a lot of times I just ignored the rules. And in order to make a monster easier, I would just ignore his spells or ignore the feats he had or ignore some of his extraordinary abilities or special abilities. Damage reduction. Damage reduction, yeah. Oh, this guy, this troll has no DR. Okay, done. You know, whatever. Strip away that kind of stuff. Just ignore some of the special features. I can't tell you how many times I've used a monster in Pathfinder that has different uh, grapple and entangle abilities that I've just completely ignored because it's so complicated. Pathfinder made it a lot easier. I did that more frequently in 3.5, but in the Pathfinder games I'm running now, a lot of times I'll just find a monster that is the right CR, the right damage, the right AC, and say, you know what? This is great. This works. I don't care that he has spells. This this guy doesn't have it. We're fine. He's just a guy to hit. Right. And I want to jump in there. A, a couple points I want to make. One is you can reskin monsters sometimes just to throw your characters for a bit of a loop. I'm not one. I don't think you should punish characters for knowing the world they live in. And this is a larger topic. I think we've talked about it before. But if we lived in a world that actually had trolls that regenerated, then it is not 
outside the realm of possibility that I, as a potential adventurer, has heard stories of trolls that regenerate. So when I fight one for the first time, I don't think you should have your character's role. Do you know if it regenerates? And if not, then you don't get to use fire because why would you know to do that? Because you're kind of punishing a player for metagaming when it's really not metagaming if they lived in that world. But there are times where people might be abusing that or they've just, you know, they've read the monster manual backwards and forwards and they know this is a nice troll, we use fire. This is a hydra, we use that. So that's when you start messing with them and changing things up. And, oh, this hydra, actually, when you touch it with a torch, it becomes a flaming hydra. And now all the heads have fire breath. Thank you. You know, (laughs) it can be kind of a dick move. But if you need to challenge your players, it's okay to do it in, you know, in moderation. I wouldn't do it all the time. But just as a slight warning that, hey, if you're always trying to use this knowledge, this is a magical world. Things can change. This is a beast that maybe has never existed before. So don't always assume that what you know is right. But the thing I wanted to touch on about kind of weakening the monsters or strengthening the monsters to balance with the party, that makes a lot of sense. And as far as a game goes, you want it to be challenging. You want it to be balanced. You want it to be fair. But I do feel that there are some times where you get into a situation where, okay, well, when I was at first level and I fought an orc, it was a challenge for me. Now I'm sixth level, I'm fighting orcs, it's still a challenge for me. And I kind of think from a story element, sometimes that can break the immersion. Um, And I know that's something fifth edition has tried to address with bounded accuracy and such, where if when I'm at first level, if I have to roll a 12 to knock down a door because it's a regular door, and at 10th level, I have to roll a 12 to knock down a door because now it's a magical door, then nothing really has changed. The fact that I've advanced means nothing because the challenge has, has gone up equally. So I don't think you should do that all the time because, again, I think you're kind of devaluing leveling. So what I would suggest is you find another way within the story that makes sense. And I know I've shared this example before, but I had a, a party of first-level adventurers that fought an Etten once, but I had that Etten buried in a cave-in that was half dead. So when they brought it out, one of the arms was broken, one of the heads was already dead, it was emaciated, it had half hit points, but it was still a cool encounter. So you could have a dragon that has one of its wings torn off. It just got out of a battle with another dragon, and its breath weapons have already been used for the day, so it doesn't have that ability. So you're not just nerfing it so that your characters can fight it, but you're telling a story. This is a world where other things are happening and not a video game. And the only reason why you survived is because of X, Y, and Z. Next time you fight a dragon, don't assume that the same rules apply. But again, everything in moderation. Absolutely. And doing something like that, coming across a dragon at an early level, finding out that it's been severely damaged, that's your story hook, potentially. What caused this? What took out a dragon that's around here? Maybe that's your first fight of the game. I mean, throw that at a first level party. That's your introduction to the world. They're now discovering what caused this to happen. That's a cool story. And they get a reputation for being dragon slayers before they earn it. And then everyone thinks they can do all these great things that they can't actually do. Because they have charlatan backgrounds. See what I did there? Wow. Not only did you bring up a very typical Michael story where you're trying to screw over your players, but you also tied it back to the rest of the show. Congratulations. That's what I do here. (sighs) Yes, it is. (laughs) When it comes to working with monsters to make them easier, though, I always go back to the minion rule from 4th edition. When I first read minions in 4th edition, I thought it was one of the dumbest things I'd ever read. 
And now I find myself using that rule all the time. I love minions. Yeah, because the point of it is to make a big, cool fight. It's to to give the PCs a challenging encounter that's appropriate to their level, but one where they can mow through 20 or 30 guys and feel like badasses. I mean, if you stick exactly to the CR rules of a typical Dungeons & Dragons game, you're really never going to be able to have that cool movie scene where you have four heroes on one ridge and you have a hundred bad guys on the other ridge. And after a whole bunch of computer special effects, you've got four heroes on one ridge and no bad guys. That doesn't work in Dungeons and Dragons. And I have tried many times in the old editions. I I remember I was one of my first games we were playing AD&D and I thought it would be so cool if they walked into a room that has a hundred skeletons. I killed everybody. Yeah. It, it was really easy to kill everyone with a big group of people. I remember specifically an old D&D 3.5 game where an, someone new was GMing who didn't know all of the ins and outs of the rules as well as he should have. Uh, not his fault. He just kind of plowed ahead because he was experimenting. And he said, oh... These these skeletons are a quarter CR, so that should be four of them to one of you, right? Math. Math says yes. The evidence of a dead party says no. No. But when we go to the minion rule and you say, okay, here's here's a bunch of creatures. They're an appropriate AC and damage and hits and saves to fight you toe to toe, but they go down in one hit. Who who cares what their hit points are? At, at this point, I'm fine with stripping away that part of the mechanics. In 4th edition, it said they all have one hit point, but there are certain conditions about when they die and when they don't die. That was fitting to the tactical nature of that system. In 5th edition, in Pathfinder, as I'm manipulating and doing whatever I want to do with these games that I'm running, I don't care about that a lot of times. I just say, hey, you rolled a really good hit. You described your attack really well. You killed five of these guys. Good for you. Or, uh, you know what? You rolled shitty damage and you just kind of softballed in your description. You got a guy down. Try better next time. Yeah. Don't don't suck so much. <laughs> uh, now, one of the things that I did early in 4th edition, and I think eventually this came out as a, as a rule or a supplement or whatever, is I, I introduced super minions, which basically they had hit points, but it's always like 10. So it was something that if you did max damage, you would probably kill them. Or if you hit them twice, they would die no matter how much damage you did. Or if you criticaled them, they would die. And there were many times where you would, fa- you know, you'd have the party in- come up against seven or eight, nine bad guys. And there's always that question where someone says, I wonder if they're minions. Someone do something. See if they die. And they die. They're like, oh, okay, they're minions. And then, you know, it's like, whew. But then when you introduce super minions, they're like, hey, hit him with a this. Okay, he doesn't go down. Oh, no, these are all not minions. So it was a cheap gag, but it worked many times that you would they would put in a situation like, oh, these are minions. Oh, no, they're not. Oh, okay, yes, they are. So you kind of got that sort of roller coaster effect of the emotion of how tense the battle was uh, by cheating a little bit, which, uh, as we all know, I am not above. No, you are well entrenched in that world. And that's actually where we're going to move to next, uh, following this theme, is we're going to talk about creating monsters whole cloth, just completely fabricating a monster, which could be 
picking different pieces and parts from other monsters, or it could be the Michael method, and you create a Tersharctopus because science. <laughs> no, there there was no science there. That was just you being a dick. Actually, there there was a story to that where there was a, a rule of three that was introduced. I think you're familiar with the rule of three. Asshole. Um, maybe even the rule of four, perhaps. But Asshole. Rule of three, definitely. <laughs> but uh, but there was a reason why it was three things together. But ultimately, this was just supposed to be a fight. Because in that particular moment, and for those of you who are new, one of the first uh, actual play series that we ran was called A New World. And there was a creature in it called a Tersharctopus, which, as you might imagine, was a combination of a turtle, a shark, and an octopus. And the characters had to fight. It was the first actual battle of the game. And so, Caleb, and I thought it would be kind of funny to talk a little bit about how I created that monster versus how he would create that monster. Well, I think you just gave yourself the transition to go into how you would do it. So there's no point to throw it back to me here. <laughs> so when I did it, I just made it up on the spot. Like, I knew days in advance that they were going to fight a Tershoctopus. I, I had a reason why it was made up of three things. I knew where it was going to come from. But the only point of that creature was to have a battle, because in that particular game, there had not been one yet. But I didn't really care about how many hit points it had. I didn't really care what its armor class was. I didn't care what its abilities were. I wanted it to invoke a feeling of what they were trying to accomplish. I wanted it to show them that this world was dangerous and that they would have to work together, because that fit the theme of the story I was telling. So the monster appeared while all the characters, well, basically the monster appeared off screen. The characters were all having a negotiation conversation. Off screen, they hear, ah, they run to help. And here's a Tersharctopus on the shore. It has tentacles, so I gave it a grappling attack, but I only used that against NPCs. So when they showed up, it already had a couple of them grappled and were throwing them in the air. Uh, it used it the, the tentacle to slam one of the NPCs down on its back because it's a turtle shell killing the NPC instantly. Again, I'm telling the characters this is a dangerous creature. When they first started doing some attacks, they didn't do a lot of damage. I kind of just hinted that it might have damage reduction. I, I, would, I just said, you hit it, but it, you know it has sort of a blubbery underhide and you don't think you did as much damage. Or if they, if they barely hit or just, just missed, I would say that your weapon was deflected off its turtle shell, which is very hard. And so I was giving them all these narrative clues that this was a tough creature. I had no idea how many hit points it had. I didn't, honestly, I didn't know what his armor class was. I didn't know how much damage it did. I didn't care. I just wanted there to be this obstacle that lasted until it was not interesting. And if you go back and listen to that, you'll see that there became a moment where they were either going to run away and it was going to run away because it, it had, they had scared it off. Like it had accomplished its point. So I was okay with it running away. And one of the characters was like, no, I want to kill it. I want to fight it. And I had him roll a charisma roll. He did very well. And then I just narrated the rest of the battle that he was able to rally the troops and everyone rushed in and all the NPCs got spears and they were able to flip it on its back. And after a while, they killed it. I have, again, I have no idea how long that should have taken. The creature as designed probably would have killed everybody. But that wasn't the point of that monster. It wasn't to be a creature they defeated. It was to invoke a feeling. And that's why I didn't know or care what those stats were. So in that context, you did the right thing. I think so. Of course you do. Well, but I mean, really, go back and listen to that episode. I think it worked oh, yeah. exactly as I wanted it to. It, that is actually a really good episode and a really good combat because you 
got a lot of emotions and investments out of the players. You really got them into the fight. They were really role-playing the successes and failures of their dice. And what what I really enjoyed is that if you listen to the entire thing, that is where Evan's character started his role to become a leader in the village. Like he, from that moment on, he did become a leader because of the way he did that. Like he easily could have let it run away, but he's like, no, I want to rally the troops. And that became a thing for his character throughout the rest of that, that adventure where he was actually on the ballot to become like a mayor, you know, and they, they actually fixed the election so that he would win, which I thought was awesome. None of that would have happened if that battle had not happened and had it not happened the way that it happened. Exactly. And because of how you tell stories and how you run games, that was obviously the best way to do that. And there was nothing wrong with that whatsoever. However, <laughs> however, you're totally wrong. and I'm totally right is what I'm really trying to say. <laughs> however, I will say this. Even though you did not prepare a monster by the books, even though you say you didn't care how much damage it did or what its, what its armor class was, you still knew what some of those facts were. Because at some point, a character hit and another character missed. Now, whether you made up the AC in that moment, you still had an AC. It still existed. Now, if you did that by saying, okay, he rolled really high, he got a hit. And that defined the AC, and then you based everyone else's successes or failures off that first attack, that's fine. You defined it in the moment because that's how your story needed it to work. And that is what, what happened. I, d I don't remember specifically, but someone rolled high enough that like, yeah, that probably hit. And they knew they rolled like a 17. So at that point, anything that was a 17 or higher had to hit, you know, because I'm going to be consistent at least. And like if someone rolled a 15, that was a miss. So they then knew that it was somewhere between 16 and 17. Right. And, and that is, I'm going to say the potential downside of making a homebrew monster like that. You need to be paying very close attention to what's happening at the table if you are not making up these numbers ahead of time. Because my point of being the crunch guy and looking at the mechanics is that I feel the mechanics are the framework and the foundation and the balance for the story we're making up. And if I don't have at least a couple of those numbers in place, I think things can get a little too crazy and people can end up not having as much fun as they could at the table. And as we all know, we want everyone to have fun at the table. So at the very least, if you are using the Michael method and you're making up a monster on the spot, and you don't care what the numbers are and what the attacks are, you might want to jot it down while you're doing it. So that you don't forget that this guy rolled a 17 and he hit and tell the next guy who rolled a 17 that he missed. Because you don't want that to happen. Correct. Even in my method, that will screw up the game. Exactly. And, and the same with damage. You, you might be just rolling a couple d6s for damage or, or whatever as it happens based on the attack that the monster makes. But you want to try to be consistent there. You know the AC of your of your PCs. So if you're actually rolling dice to do these hits, then you need to also be consistent with these bonuses. You don't want to make it look like you're just arbitrarily picking someone to attack and one attack hits and one attack doesn't. You want to have a little bit of continuity in a fight. Now, if we go to my method of doing things, 
I actually fall somewhere in between the Michael way of doing it and the book way of doing it. So even though I'm the crunch guy, I do take a lot of shortcuts. If we look at the book, Rules as Written, there are instructions for making monsters. Now, if we go back to the 3.5 and the Pathfinder way of doing things, there are incredibly detailed instructions for making monsters. And you can spend hours making a monster that is 100% balanced and crafted exactly like it is in the monster manual or the bestiary. You generate the stats, you pick the type, it gives you the base attack bonus, the good saves, the bad saves, the feats it should have, the number of hit dice. And based on the CR that you're creating, there's basically tables that say, okay, something of this level should have either so many special abilities and supernatural qualities, or it should have some spell slots, or it should maybe borrow a couple class abilities of an appropriate level. So if you like doing that kind of thing, go for it. I've done it before. It's fun. It's rewarding. It's cool to actually essentially build a monster like you build a character. And then you plop that monster down, and that's what you're fighting with. It works. It's balanced. As long as you follow the instructions, it's cool. That being said, I don't do that because it takes a lot of work, and I'm just too goddamn busy to invest that much time into into the game. I don't have it anymore. Well, I also would just interject here and say that you have enough experience that you you know you you're like a master craftsman. You can take shortcuts because you know what you're shortcutting. Where someone who's very new to the game probably should follow those directions at least for a little while mm -hmm. to get a grasp. You know, and I, I do the same thing quickly. Like if I have a bunch of ninjas jump out of a tree to attack you, or, or they're on a roof somewhere for Son no, no goddamn re reason, I, I have a pretty good idea of what the armor class of a bandit is. You know, it's generally about 16. I know generally what the damage is going to be. It's 1d6 plus 2. So even if I haven't made up, the, those creatures by the book, or I don't have them handy, my my rough estimates are going to be pretty darn close to the book anyway. And I think that you probably have that, that experience as well, that if you're going to make a monster that has this ability and this ability, you can kind of eyeball it and be close enough that it's probably fair, where someone who has less experience probably couldn't. That is actually what I was going to explain as the method I typically use in an average game at this point in time. If I am not pulling a specific monster out of the monster manual, or if I'm not using a specific NPC that I've built or I've taken out of the back of the book, like if I'm not saying, okay, you're fighting bandits and a wizard, or if, if I'm not saying, all right, you're fighting a beholder, 80% of the time, I, I figure out what's appropriate for the fight. Okay, you're fighting street thugs, you're fighting goblins, you're fighting this, you're fighting that. And I just base the necessary stats off of the averages that I know in the system. To be perfectly honest, I don't stat out all these creatures. I just figure out what I need for the fight. I need AC. I need an attack. I need some damage. I should probably consider a save if, the PC, if I know that the PCs have spells or abilities that require a save. And I might need to have a rough idea of their hit points. If I have decided that these are go down in one hit monsters or these are last for the length of the fight monsters i might actually give them hit points or i might just say 
they they're alive until the fight's over. I have run encounters very recently where I did not have hit points. I just wrote a total down, a running total of all the damage the PCs were doing. And when it got to a number that I thought was big enough to justify the end of a climactic fight, I said, hey, you killed him. But that's also because I was playing Pathfinder and these characters were doing 50 plus damage every turn. And I didn't want to say, oh, shit, he's dead already. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Right. And I think, you know, this really comes down to how you enjoy the game, what it is about the game that that you or your table likes. And as a storyteller, I generally try to tell stories at the table. My method is fine because that's what you're expecting at my table. But there are going to be players who probably would be upset if they knew that or or, or even if they, if they just kind of figured that out, that they've spent all this time honing these characters to create certain advantages in certain situations, and then we put them in those certain situations and we neglect those advantages because we don't we don't put into don't put into place the things that would trigger their abilities. So while I prefer this method, I understand that there are other ways of doing it that different tables would enjoy a lot more. Absolutely. With all of our advice, always weigh our words and our opinions with your skill level and your preferences as a GM and your players' preferences. The things we say, we base off of our experience and our players. We run our own games. I mean, not as much as we want to, but we do run games at least once a week for the most part. And when I say this is what I did last week, the things that I make up, I cater to my players. I know who my players are. I know what they like to do. And I know the situations they like to get in. When I have a player that loves really crazy combat, I'm going to set up a combat situation to let that person have a lot of fun. If I have a player that loves weird social combat and a lot of skill checks, I'm going to try to figure out how to make that happen too. That's why a lot of the times I hand wave some of the aspects of combat because all I want to focus on is what matters. When I look at an entry for a monster in the monster manual, and it's two pages long, and there's all these feats and all these spells and all these special abilities, I ignore a lot of that because it doesn't matter to the story at the moment. And I'm pulling out the elements of the monster that are most important. What's most important in this fight with the dragon? Is it that it's just a dragon you're fighting and holy shit, it's a dragon? Is it that it's using its breath weapon? Is it its size and its wing attacks? Is it that it's flying around and swooping down on the PCs and the NPCs? What is the most important moment to highlight in the narrative and the cinematic description? Maybe you just need to focus on that. And that's there's nothing wrong with doing that because you're telling a good story. And you're delivering a good experience at the game table. There's a specialization concept there that I am not a combat guy because I'm not great at it. I think I'm pretty good at telling a good story, uh, creating interesting situations that it can be fun to resolve and, and have some weight for characters. So if you're coming to my table and you're ex- anticipating a really well thought out tactical battle, you're probably going to be disappointed. I'm not the DM that can provide that. I can do it every now and then if I put enough thought into it, enough work, 
I can create a you know one or two battles in a game that might might do that for you, but I just don't have the interest or the talent to do it consistently. So that's where you kind of have to think if that's the type of game you enjoy, then you may need a different DM. I may not be the DM for you in that case. That doesn't mean I'm a bad DM. That doesn't mean you're a bad player. That just means our play styles don't mesh. And there's nothing wrong with that. But again, if if you're a new DM, you want to try to know a little bit of everything because you're still figuring out your table. And you may have a table full of role players who don't care about combat, but you want to do enough combat to keep them interested. You know, you, or you may have a bunch of tacticians who don't really care about your story and everything's just a bag of hit points to see how they can get through. So you want to try to touch and play with all the toys on the table, but don't be surprised after a while that there's a couple that you stop playing with or you only touch them on occasion and you focus on the toys that you enjoy more. Absolutely. You're absolutely right there. I feel... As we move towards wrapping this up, there, there's two last things I want to bring up. One, when we look at older versions of Dungeons & Dragons, specifically 3.5, the Pathfinder world, they gave us templates to slap onto monsters. Templates are a great tool if you are digging really deeply into that crunch-heavy world of making monsters to alter your monsters and do something different with them. A template could be feral or demon-blooded, or mutated in some way, half-troll, half-dragon, that kind of thing. Uh, the, the intention of those templates is to add them to an existing creature to make it more challenging, to make it more unique. Like Michael was saying earlier, everyone knows what a troll does. If suddenly you have a troll walk up, and it has weird horns, and it unleashes a breath weapon, you're now giving the PC something they haven't expected. And it's a half-dragon troll, and there's something new to deal with. It's probably stronger, it has more hit points, it might have a couple new abilities. So if you are in that world of doing things, that's a really great way to alter monsters easily without wasting a lot of time. And back in the 3.5 era, almost every supplementary book that came out that had anything to do with monsters had some sort of template or way to alter monsters in general. So even if you're not using those rules, even if you're not specifically using the qualities and the stats as defined there, there's a lot of great inspiration. You can at least read the text and say, okay, well, if I apply this template, essentially what it means is the monster is stronger, it has this flavor, and this ability. How can I adapt that into my rules and what I like to do? So there's a lot of great resources out there, even if you're not using the raw numbers on the paper. The other thing I want to bring up is actually going back to my method of just kind of half-assing monsters as they need to be, because I realized as we were talking about it, I was speaking very generally, and I didn't give you any concrete examples. And I don't want to walk away from this conversation without telling you at least a little bit about what I actually do. 90% of the time, I go by averages. I know what the average roll of a die is, I know what the typical bonus of my characters are, and I try to find a nice meeting point based on how difficult I want the challenge to be. So if I know my players have a plus six attack, and I say, well, the average roll of a d20 is a 10 or an 11, they should be hitting a 16 or a 17 without problems. So if I make anything lower than that, it's going to be an easy fight. If I make anything harder than that, it's going to be a more challenging fight. The same with the AC of the monsters. I know what my PCs are attacking with. 
I know what they're going to roll. I try to make it either more challenging or more easy based on how quickly I want these guys to go down. When it comes to hit points, sometimes I'll just define. These guys have 5, 10, 15. I, I go by increments of 5 because it's easy. Sometimes I just define it as, okay, this is a minion. He goes down in one hit. This guy goes down in three hits. <laughs> like I said before, sometimes I don't even care what their hit points are. I just rack up how much damage they've done until it looks cool. You know, if they're fighting a giant Hydra, they should do a shitload of damage before it dies. If they're fighting a huge giant creature, it should take longer to die than a little guy. So, yeah, a lot of times I wing it. And I'm the crunch guy, and I know I'm kind of being hypocritical here in that I don't always do it the way I preach that we should. But like Michael is saying, we're doing we're playing to our strengths. And we're delivering what works best for our players in the story at that moment. That makes sense. I think with the experience that you and I have, we are able to do that. But I would encourage someone that's just starting, don't necessarily feel as comfortable to wing it completely. Because you're probably going to overbalance or underbalance an encounter and either make it too easy or you're going to wipe your party out with, like, again, a hundred skeletons in one room. Sounds cool not going to actually probably work out very well. But I do want to close. The last piece of advice that I would give is that you still want to read the monster manual. Pay attention to some of the fluff. Because as I stated earlier, there are people that are probably smarter than us that have spent a lot of time and effort and energy to craft these monsters. And part of that reason is that they want to invoke a certain feel. And if you're always just kind of making things up on the fly, you might miss that. That if you're fighting five goblins, that should feel different than five gnolls because they have different tactics. And even if they don't necessarily affect the rolls necessarily, you should know that gnolls are more likely to smell you. So your ranger should know to come up, you know, upwind from them so that they don't get uh, scented first. You know, some creatures are going to be more likely to surround you. So being aware of your flanks make a lot more, you know, make, make more sense and are, are more necessary. Other creatures are smart enough to know to attack the wizard first because they're weaker and you need to protect the wizard. And if you're if you're ignoring the flavor sometimes of those monsters, then everything does just become a sack of hit points that you need to do X damage and then you get past. You can still tell a good story that way, but there is something missing, I think, from some of those battles if you don't include some of that flavor in, in how they act and react to your characters. That's really good words of wisdom to think about there, Michael, because essentially the flavor is what matters here. The, the fluff is what matters. We're, all the monsters are pretty much the same thing. They have numbers, they have stats, they have hit points, they have attacks. Most of them do damage that are pre pretty similar. If, if you read through the fifth edition monster manual, you will see a lot of very similar damage entries and bonuses because that's how the system works. It's all about the flavor. It's whether this creature has a multi-attack and a rend ability, if this creature has a bonus because it is flanking the PC with its own allies. It's all about the story and the narrative and the flavor. So when you end up making up your own monsters, because you will start doing it, you have to base it on your experience of the established canon. And very simply, just play to the tropes. Read the monster manual a couple times. Know what's in there. If you're really starting out as a GM, you're going to read word for word from the book anyway. So just 
do it. There's nothing wrong with that. Use what's there. They give you a lot of really good information. My own personal problems with 5th edition aside, the monsters are really well built. They're cool. They're good to use. There's a lot of good flavor about how the monsters work and function and how they attack. That's really useful information. Even when you're playing in a different genre or a different setting, knowing that one enemy functions differently than another enemy is what's important. That's how you make combat interesting, and that's how you move your story forward. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to us ramble as much as we have enjoyed listening to ourselves ramble. Uh, But we're not quite done. We're only done for now. So this is going to be one of the rare table topic two-parters. Caleb and I are going to kind of take a break, and we're going to come back together with further discussion about reskinning and rebuilding. And we're going to do that by we're going to take a monster and turn it into either an environmental challenge or a trap, maybe both. So we're going to try to actually create this rather than just talking generalities and say, hey, you can do it. We are actually going to put our big boy pants on for a change and stat it out. And I'm actually going to do it too. God damn it. Hey, that this was your idea. So don't give me any dirty looks. We're going to present our versions as a kind of a compare and contrast of our, our methodologies and our styles on how you could take a monster and use it in a, as a trap or as an environmental effect. And then we'll have a couple other things that we want to talk about. We'll probably have another background class combination to discuss as well. So until then, this has been Michael. And this has been Caleb. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.